Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. The markets this week were all about interest rates once again, with central banks making further hawkish noises about the need to raise interest rates again. And the latest employment data from the United States yet again showing that companies continue to add jobs, underlying the resilience of the economy, but increasing the likelihood that more central bank action will indeed be needed to rein in inflation. Government bond yields were accordingly up across the board, with the benchmark 10-year Treasury in the US rising to 4.3%, And in the UK, where the 10-year gilt reached a new high of 4.62%, the Debt Management Office, the body that issues gilts on behalf of the government, auctioned £4 billion worth of gilts this week at a yield of 5.67%. That's the highest new issue yield since 2007 on the eve of the global financial crisis. The markets now think that yields could go higher still, with a point at which they plateau before we even think about them coming down, still seemingly some way away. Meanwhile, while copper and gold traded sideways, oil was up a couple of dollars to $72 a barrel in the futures market, and the pound strengthened a tad against the dollar. To discuss all this and the impact on investment trusts, spoiler alert, it's been another tough week for the sector, I'm joined today by Anthony Leatham, Head of Investment Trust Research at the Brokers Peel Hunt, to talk about the markets and discounts in the infrastructure and renewables sector, and then by Tim Levine, the CEO of Augmentum Fintech, the specialist fintech trust, ticker AUGM, which earlier this year passed its fifth anniversary as a listed investment vehicle. As it happens, Augmentum Fintech was one of the very best performers this week, bucking the general trend after it published its latest annual results recording a positive NAV of 3.4% for the year to the end of March and holding its annual Capital Markets Day, at which many of its investee companies presented. Uh, The market liked what it heard and marked up these shares by nearly 8% on the week. The NAV total return of Augmentum since launch has been 18% annualised, which is close to its 20% per annum target, a higher than average target but acknowledging the greater risk that you'll find in venture capital and early-stage growth companies, the area in which Augmentum specialises. The discount on this one, though, to reported NAV remains wider than 30%, and that's a long way from the premium of which it traded for some time after its IPO. Indeed, for a while, it was the trust with the highest premium of all across the investment trust sector. But times and sentiment change. More on that in a moment. With the S&P 500 index roughly flat over this week's trading week, shortened to four days in America because of the Independence Day celebrations, and the FTSE all share down a grim-looking 3.25%, it was not a great week for the UK market or the investment trust sector. The FTSE 100 index is now at an eight-month low, and some brokers are suggesting that interest rates may now have to go as high as 7% before the Bank of England is done. Mind you, brokers need business badly these days, and outlier forecasts like these need to be treated with some scepticism. Well, I do anyway. The Investment Trust Index, comprising around 180 trusts that are in the All Share Index, was down around 2% on the week, and the average discount continues to languish somewhere south of 17%. 
pretty much in line with the recent lows. As always, there were some notable movements within the sector, however, with a dozen or so trusts posting gains of more than 3% at one end of the universe and around 70 down more than 3%. Our usual list of all the biggest movements in share prices, NAV and discounts can be found behind the subscription paywall on the Moneymakers website, along with our latest fund profile, which this week features Invesco Bond Income Plus, a debt fund that invests mainly in high-yield fixed-interest securities and currently offers a yield of around 7%. A subscription to the Moneymaker Circle, incidentally, costs just £2 a week, and along with some uh, soon-to-be-confirmed sponsorship, I hope, helps us to keep this podcast free. So thank you to all of you who've contributed in this way over the past couple of years. The Investment Trust news this week was relatively thin on the ground. We had full-year figures from the aforementioned Augmentum Fintech, and also from Oryx International, another small cap trust in the Harwood Capital Stable, which reported an NAV decline of 5.9% for its latest year, down but ahead of the UK small cap indices, thanks to its focus on quality companies. There's also fully a figure from Schroeder British Opportunities, ticker SBO, uh, which reported a small positive NAV total return of 3.1%, but saw its discount hurtle out to more than 30%, resulting in a negative share price total return of minus 18%. It was notable the gains were in the private part of the portfolio and the losses in the quoted portfolio, raising some familiar valuation questions that other mixed public-private trusts have also faced. There were interim results and NAV updates too from a handful of trusts, including Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities, ticker APEO, which announced an NAV total return of 3% for the year to 31st of March, but the chairman warned that there would be a, quote, downward impact on earnings growth in the portfolio in the second half, uh, which might have an impact on valuations, and said it had so far not implemented any share buybacks, despite the 10% discount. I also heard interims from Geiger Counter, the uranium nuclear power play, whose NAV was down 13.9%, despite higher uranium prices. The decline attributed by the company to the market fallout from the spring banking crisis. And there were also quarterly updates from the likes of 3i Infrastructure and Gore Street Energy Storage. CK Asset Holdings, meanwhile, said it now had acceptances for 89% of the shares in Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH. And then the offer has gone unconditional and the shares are expected to be cancelled on the 3rd of August. CK Asset Holdings said it's considering listing Civitas shares on the International Stock Exchange in Jersey, in order to retain its REIT status, thereby avoiding the need to pay corporation tax. Finally, RTW Biotech Opportunities, ticker RTW, said it would spend up to $10 million out of the $92 million proceeds from the sale of Prometheus Biosciences to the big pharma company Merck, and spend $10 million on share buybacks, with the remainder being reinvested. As always, a full list of this week's investment trust announcements is also available to Moneymakers Circle subscribers, and I am posting there a string of charts summarising developments this year in the markets and in the investment trust sector. You might think it's best to look away, but we have to track the progress as it happens. That's the way the world goes, however much we think that we may be, maybe, approaching a plateau in the derating we've seen over the last 18 months, and what a derating it has been. On then to my conversation with Anthony Leatham, Head of Investment Trust Research at the brokers Peel Hunt. 
Anthony, I thought I'd kick off by just asking you about your reaction to the market. Obviously, the whole market is all about interest rates rising mm-hmm. still and central banks sticking to their guns and indeed perhaps even loading more ammo into their guns. And that's really kind of casting a pall over the whole markets at the moment. How does it look to you now? Are we getting close to the end of this cycle, do you think? Oh, gosh. Uh, Jonathan, great to be with you again. I wish I could give you the clearest crystal ball answer to that question. But unfortunately, we find ourselves also having to navigate what is a really tough macroeconomic backdrop, lots of noise and lots of volatility in the investment trust space, leading to an understandable kind of hesitancy on the part of investors. And I can totally empathize. I mean, I've stopped looking at my portfolio because it's too painful. And it is about, I think, riding this period out. I think Unfortunately, investors have not been rewarded for being invested in certain trust instruments because the discounts have widened. But I take comfort from the long term. So you look at the long term chart. This time right now is very ugly in terms of the deep discount we find ourselves on. But we've been in these situations before. Not the same, not the same playbook, certainly not the same ingredients in terms of macro and rising interest rates, bond yields, inflation, etc., It's been a long time since we've seen that cocktail of factors. But really, discounts exist in the investment trust space. That is a feature. Often, almost always, they overreact. And I think I take some comfort in the fact that the levels we're seeing at the moment and the dislocations between NAV performance and the share price outcomes gives you some comfort that actually, if you get involved at some of these deeper discount levels, in strategies where you back the manager, you think they've got an edge, you've seen their long-term performance, they've outperformed their relative benchmark, and you can tuck it away in the bottom drawer of the cabinet and not look at it for a few years, and you come back and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So that's what history tells us. The toughest time in markets is the time to be looking once again at trusts, and I take some comfort from that. One of the issues is it's nice to put some more money in at these levels, average discount 17% or whatever it is, and quite a lot wider in some cases. But of course, uh, if you're pretty much fully invested and you're sitting there watching it go down and down, you don't have that option particularly. You can shift from one into the other, but that's not necessarily a good tactic as you're, as you're suggesting. Well, it is difficult. I mean, you're not going to be able to suddenly magic up spare cash from your portfolio. I think one of the topics we discussed this week, actually, as a research team was you know, there are certain cases of, of sister funds within the trust universe where you've got a similar strategy being run in open-ended form. And could investors who hold those instruments maybe consider switching between one and the other? So, for example, you know, Ben Rogoff and his team manage a tech fund, and they also manage the tech trust. Tech fund, obviously, buy and sell at NAV, and I'm sure you've done very well over the long term. Could you entertain a switch from there into the tech trust trading on a, on a 15% discount. It doesn't always work because obviously a trust, the closed-ended structure allows you to get involved in less liquid parts of the market. Maybe it's the smaller cap end of the, of the spectrum or use of gearing, maybe even the use of investment in private unlisted stocks. But actually, in certain cases, they are quite similar. Another example would be something like Beta Gifford Global Discovery Fund, which again is open-ended, but its equivalent in the trust space is Edinburgh Worldwide, which is trading on a 23% discount. Again, net of all the costs of making that switch, you wonder whether actually you might be rewarded for looking at that as as a potential opportunity. So it's very specific. You obviously have to hold one to make it happen, but it's something maybe to consider. 
Yeah, and just before we move on and talk a little bit more about some specific names and sectors, you're in the broking business. We know that volumes are pretty poor at the moment. Uh, we've seen some consolidation and we've seen Numis get uh, sold off to Deutsche Bank. What's it like in the breaking business? Is it going to be a long, hot summer, is it, while you're trying to catch a bit somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, we are eternal optimists and we try and stay on the front foot. It's not helpful that the primary market has been incredibly quiet. You know, we haven't seen many, if any, IPOs. The secondary market, similarly so, and understandably, given the amount of, of red I see on my data sheet with, uh, with regard to discounts. And volumes have been tricky. You know, I think, as I said, as an investor myself, I felt that hesitancy. I felt that nervousness around markets. You know, what next? If I step in now, will I risk losing quite a bit on that particular trade? So I think the retail participation, actually, even post-COVID really has sort of quietened down a bit. But all is not lost. I think this is an understandable pause in proceedings. And we are readying ourselves for, I think, what could be quite a busier Q3, Q4. There are lots of situations affecting the investment environment that could show signs of stabilizing, or we could have a better visibility of what the interest rate cycle is doing, or we could even, who knows, see some sort of improvement in the outlook for Russia, Ukraine. You could build up a laundry list of things that would stimulate the market. And then the other thing I hear, I was involved in a panel session recently talking about the UK market and frustrating when everyone in the panel is in full agreement, but nobody could disagree with the fact that the UK is as cheap as it's ever been. So if you're interested in getting involved in a really deep value opportunity, look no further than, than the UK market. So, you know, I think for us as research analysts, there's always something to talk about. And I guess the extra layer at the moment, as you pointed out, is is a pickup in M&A and corporate actions across the investment trust universe. And really, in many cases, you look at the terms, you look at the proposal, and it, and it makes sense. So yeah, we, we're keeping busy, but we're also looking forward to the market reopening a bit more meaningfully. I mean, it's obviously been a factor in the derating of investment trusts and the alternatives in particular. The fact that now guilt yields are at 5%, you can get 5% of your money one or two years from here. Of course, that's less than the current rate of inflation, but might turn out to be better than the coming rate of inflation. And a lot of people are taking some money out of equities and out of other instruments and putting them into the gilt market and into cash money market funds and so on. That's a short-term view. That's a simplistic kind of take. But uh, do you think that's been a factor in failing to produce some buyers for uh, equities at this point? I think it has. I think you're right. And really no harm in looking at it from a simplistic point of view. I mean, the competition for capital at the moment has increased because asset classes that perhaps before this period were hard to justify as an asset allocation or even an investment decision are now offering attractive yields, offering attractive returns. So it is much more competitive out there. You know, you can buy a UK corporate bond fund, high yield corporate bond fund, and it would offer you a yield higher than you can get at the moment in, in many of the trusts available. But I think trusts then have to work harder to really explain what they're doing and justify the fact that maybe it is a yield that's being competed away by other fixed income uh, instruments. But yet there is dividend growth in there, there's inflation linkage, there's real assets behind the investment strategy. It's unique. Uh, it's probably offering access to less liquid parts of the market. So there's a diversification benefit. I, mean, I think that once you start looking at the details there, you can really find a lot more that justifies the use of a trust alongside other instruments available. 
Thinking about yields, and let's talk about the alternatives, and in particular, the infrastructure and renewables. You've put out some interesting research recently looking at that. And I guess the fundamental issue here is whether the way that the markets reacted has created some anomalies and opportunities, should we say. I mean, obviously, no doubt that higher bond yields have led to a derating and some selling of many alternatives. But uh, how do you approach this from what you do in terms of analysing whether the discounts on different trusts are sensible or not? Can you sort of take us through that process? I know you start by looking at which trusts in the infrastructure renewable sector are most sensitive and least sensitive to interest rate movements. Now, that's your starting point, right? And uh, where, where do you go from there? Yeah, I mean, it's not easy. You, you see the discounts on the screen and you do have to do some work behind that to understand whether that's offering you a compelling entry point into the strategy or not. We are seeing double digit discounts. So therefore, we've gone back and looked at where are we today in terms of benchmark yields, uh, so government bond yields versus where we were at the beginning of 2022. And then we compare that to where the weighted average discount rate, as we call it, for infrastructure renewables trust stands and look at the, the spread, if you like, over the portfolio discount rate versus the benchmark yields. And that actually, as a starting point, tells you quite a lot because some strategies, particularly in the core plus infrastructure space, in the energy storage sector, Greencoat UK Wind, for example, actually have quite a large spread over the benchmark yield. So that gives them a buffer, if you like. Other strategies, to name names, Triple Point Energy Transition, Atrato, Onsite Energy, have much less buffer, less of a premium to the benchmark yield. So that's kind of starter for 10 then you look at what have those benchmark yields done, you apply some sort of reduction because actually the relationship between movement in benchmark yields and movement in discount rates isn't linear. So you have to sort of add in a bit of flexibility in there. You take away what's already been factored in by those companies and then you look at the sensitivity. So in each set of report and accounts, trusts, infrastructure or renewable trusts will have a sensitivity table and we can use that to apply our yield of discount rate movement to the NAV and forecast in rough terms what the NAV impact will be. And then with that new NAV, you can then see what the forward discount might be to that NAV. Right. And the ones that are most interesting are the ones where they got the widest spread or the lowest spread. <laughs> so I think the comfort you get is from the ones with the widest spread. The other element of it is those that will have the largest NAV impact look to be on double-digit discounts today. But if you factor in those movements, they could actually be on much lower discounts, so narrower discounts. So it is complicated to explain. It is actually quite a blunt way of looking at it because there are other factors to consider, such as you know offsetting factors like the impact of inflation, the impact of construction projects moving to operational, the fact that actual sensitivities aren't necessarily exactly the same as the expected sensitivities that they put in their in their report. So there's a few moving parts to it. But ultimately, what that's trying to tell us is, does the discount on screen today give you a decent steer as to where it might be when you, you factor in these bond yield movements on the NAV? Well, let's take a couple of examples then, just to mark the extremes, if you like, of this. I think according to your the note, among the trusts that are most sensitive to changes in bond yields and so on, you've got the core infrastructure trusts, the Hickles and the INPPs. 
But I think what you're saying is that when you do that kind of process you've been through, they're all trading on big discounts, at least on the face of it. But in reality, you're saying that those discounts, they're actually quite narrow in reality once you made those adjustments. Have I read that right? That is it. And I say, I'll caveat it with this is one way of, of slicing it and one way that we can cut through the noise and really determine whether a trust has maybe overreacted to the environment we're in and oversold. To me, it's, it's actually more a case of finding the anomalies. So for example, I don't know, something like Digital Nine Infrastructure, with the movement in bond yields, there will be an estimated NAV impact. However, even with that factored in, you're still looking at a 30% plus discount to that adjusted NAV. And that can make a big difference. That will determine whether the full force of benchmark yield movements has been factored in or not. And it's a good indicator, really, of where there are pockets of resilience, you know, those strategies that perhaps won't be as sensitive or won't be buffeted as much by what's going on in the bond market. So things like Pantheon infrastructure would fit into that. Sequoia, economic infrastructure, Bluefield, solar, they come out as actually having quite a, a low level of sensitivity in terms of NAV impact. But other trusts, even after factoring in those moves, still be on, on very wide discounts. Right. And those are the ones which uh, most immediately might attract your attention. Yeah, they could well do. But there are sort of a number of things to consider. Yeah. So, I mean, DGI 9, they've had quite a few issues that could have affected sentiment towards the, the shares, for example. They've had management issues, I think, and they've got a very concentrated portfolio. What kind of other factors would you be looking at there to see whether they're justified as well? Well, as you say, yes, their situation and certainly the share price reaction is driven by a number of factors outside of just the discount rate movement. So we've seen the negative. I think what the market at the moment is failing to appreciate is the steps that they've taken to address those negatives. So we've had a $100 million green loan to Vern Global. That's the data center business. We've had the appointment of a new manager. Uh, we've had an inflation collar applied to the Arkiva debt, uh, the inflation-linked swap. So they've had a refinancing of the Arkiva debt. So actually, you see incrementally a positive news flow that addresses a number of the points. It could improve the outlook for dividend cover. It certainly is seeking to address the capex needs of the portfolio by freeing up capital and improving the debt structure. So really, the one element to it that hasn't budged at the moment is the discount. And we're seeing that across the board, you know, where a trust will have a positive announcement. There's either a lag effect or there's just no reaction whatsoever. So for me, that's fascinating because those anomalies are exactly what makes this part of the market so interesting for the investor that can look through the noise. Indeed. Uh, and of course, that is a specialist art of which uh, you're a practitioner. <laughs> well, I try my best. Let's try another second. I mean, one of the interesting ones is battery storage, for example. Interesting for many reasons, because it was a sort of sexy area for a while. <laughs> Ties into all sorts of other stories, like electric vehicles and so on. But relative newcomers, these to the investment trust sector, the uh, trusts involved like um, Gore Street and Gresham House Storage and so on. And they've moved a long way as well. And you've highlighted those as one particular area which maybe it's been overdone. Is that right on your kind of analysis that we've just described? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've written about Gresham House Energy Storage. We think it's a really good blend of operational and construction projects, a nicely covered dividend, attractive yield. You know, battery storage, I think, is instrumental in the delivery of the kind of energy transition theme. And um, we're seeing generalists, solar specialists, other players really look to batteries to help them to deliver 
the energy onto the grid. So it's a theme that's not going away anytime soon. It's structural, it's important. I think it has been affected as much as any of the other trusts in the sector. But as I say, their starting point is a double digit discount rate, weighted average discount rate for the portfolio, which gives you a buffer against what is happening in the kind of benchmark yield environment. And just on that point, one of the other things we've looked at, as well as NAV impact, is what I was discussing earlier, this hook. So a trust that's offering you a yield that could at the moment, on the face of it, be competed away by other fixed income offerings. However, with a number of the strategies, there is an underlying dividend growth story. So many of the trusts in the infrastructure renewable space have promised inflation linkage, either explicitly or implicitly through the revenues and the agreements that they have. So what we're expecting is to see a generous pass through of that inflation linkage in the form of of dividend growth. So we actually took the opportunity to look at what has been promised in terms of the next year's dividend growth. And again, the dispersion is, is very wide. So you've got perhaps a hickle at one end, which has told the market that it's keeping its dividend flat, right through to three trusts, at least, that are offering double-digit dividend growth. Greencoat UK Wind, 13%, Next Energy Solar on 11%, and Octopus Renewables on 10%. That's generous. And that's also with a forecast attractive dividend cover as well. So I think with certainty of cash flows, the way that these investment vehicles are set up, they do get good visibility And to see that kind of level of pass-through is, I think, a really important differentiator from conventional bonds or, as you said, you know, the risk-free option of putting your money in the bank and, you know, getting 4 to 5%. I think they still have a really important role to play in the form of that dividend growth. Yeah, because then you're comparing what is basically a real growing yield or at least maintaining its value in real and a government bond, which uh, (laughs) over time almost certainly isn't. So, yeah, that's interesting. We have seen some dividend cuts in the commercial property sector. But do you think there are in your universe of, you know, renewables and infrastructure, are there trusts out there whose balance sheets are in the wrong shape? I mean, we've heard distress signals coming out of a couple, I think, uh, trying to put themselves up for sale or whatever. Others saying they're going to sell some assets and so on. Is that going to be a theme of the next few months? I think investment trusts in this space, infrastructure and renewables, have benefited in the past from trading on premiums and being able to come to market with a a credible pipeline of projects that they want to get involved in and look to raise capital. Or on the other occasions, they've used their revolving credit facility to fund further investments and they want to refinance that through issuing equity. That tap has been switched off. So really, whereas before you could just be a yield co that could accumulate assets and generate attractive dividends and sort of keep doing that process, I think actually in many cases, strategies will need to look at what assets they've got that are core that they want to hold on to and perhaps others that they would like to sell or maybe they've completed construction, it's operational, they've enjoyed the valuation uplift, but they could recycle that capital into other projects that would be in turn quite accretive. So I think the onus is on the management teams to be proactive and to look at ways of adding value through active recycling of capital. I guess the other benefit of doing that is also that it proves the valuation. So a lot of the NAVs are are valued using a number of different factors, but there's nothing quite like selling an asset at a price to really prove what it's worth. So yeah, I think we're going to see different approaches 
And to your first point, I don't see stress as such. I just see the need for management teams to be quite proactive in the way that they manage the portfolio and get the best out of the opportunities in the market. The other interesting thing, which again, you know, taking a slight read across from the commercial property sector is, at some point, these discounts might get to a point where they attract M&A, they attract buyers. You mentioned that earlier on. And we've seen one or two cases where that's happened already. And of course, there's a famous example going back in infrastructure trust history, uh, where one of the trusts got taken out after it went to a big discount. Do you think in some of these cases, we are at levels where that becomes a real possibility? And if so, what is the trigger that that might bring those uh, about? Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. Your point about real estate is a good one. I mean, we've seen a lot of activity there. I think we've seen around 10 London listed REITs be the target of acquisitions or mergers in recent times. So it's definitely active on that side. And as you say, for those of us who've been around long enough to remember the JLF deal, it kind of came out of the blue. But you could see why in sort of 2020 hindsight, it was a really valuable portfolio. It fell to a discount because of a variety of factors it got bid for, I think it came in at a 20% premium to the last published NAV, 24% premium to the prior closing price. And I think it really shook up the market because, you know, these are portfolios of valuable assets to somebody, particularly a strategic acquirer, or maybe someone who's promised to get to net zero by 2030 and needs to actually bolt on a number of renewable assets that would achieve that objective. You know, suddenly you look at these trusts through a different lens Now, it's not as easy just to say the whole market's on a discount, therefore it's up for grabs. I think that's unfortunately too simplistic. Um, So we've applied a couple of, I guess, filters. So you look at the share price rating. That's the discount to our estimated NAV. So that's using the analysis we spoke about before, the NAV after factoring in what's happened to discount rates, etc. You'd look at the market cap because I think scale is an important consideration And then the other factor is how many assets are there in the portfolio? Is it very fragmented? Is it a case of hundreds of small projects? Or is it actually a more manageable, let's say a dozen bits of kit dotted around the country that could actually be quite easily taken on board and and managed and, and get and benefit from? So you apply that kind of set of filters to our universe of infrastructure and renewable trusts. And I guess you get to around 12 names based on our analysis. And that then whittles down to about five when you factor in that some of those names trading in the quote unquote sweet spot might be too small or too complicated for an acquirer to really get the full benefit from. And then that probably whittles down to three names that still sit within the sweet spot, but have, I guess, all the right ingredients. And that would be the names like Foresight Solar, or the two digital specialists, Cordium Digital and and Digital 9 Infrastructure. And the principle behind it is, are they sitting on a portfolio of valuable, hard-to-access assets, or in the case of the digital players, companies, operating platforms, that would be valuable to an acquirer? So we've done that exercise. It's by no means saying that it's actually going to happen. But I really think at times when we're seeing these wide discounts that you have to consider all possibilities. And maybe that's a catalyst, you know, maybe that will encourage more tactical investors to get involved because JLIF was cheap at the time, but I actually think the environment we're faced with at the moment is even cheaper than that. You know, the dislocation is more pronounced in certain cases. 
Yeah. So it's an added sort of comfort factor, if you like, if nothing else. In those cases, if it were to happen, it would lead to some kind of opportunity to uh, exit at a premium to the current price, of course. Well, that's very, very interesting, Anthony. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll come back another time and talk to you about the rest of the market. We've only been talking about one part of the investment trust universe, but one particularly interesting one. And I look forward to having a chance to come back and talk to you about uh, the rest of the market in due course, including the Equity Investment Trust. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Arthur. I had the chance this week to uh, catch up with Tim Levine, the CEO of Momentum Fintech, the listed investment trust that uh, specializes in fintech, which we can ask him to explain what that is in a moment. Augmentum came to the market in 2018, so just coming up to its fifth year as a listed trust. So it came to the market through an IPO in 2018, and since then has produced some pretty good NAV performance, but uh, more recently seen the share prices derate significantly, along with other companies that operate in the unlisted space. So, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Can I quickly then ask you just to kick off by saying, how you define fintech. It's obviously a phrase that's much bandied about, but uh, how do you define it? Well, thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me and delighted to be here. I think if you line up 20 people and ask them to describe fintech, you might get a very different answer. Ultimately, for us, we are focused on businesses operating in the financial services sector that are looking to fundamentally disrupt and in part disintermediate from traditional financial services. I think often we see businesses that self-define as fintech, and they are a lot of fin with a little bit of tech in the background. And then you have those that are very much tech first, and there is a tangential element of financial services as well, i.e. they might process payments and they would declare that they are a fintech. I think for us, we're very clear. We want businesses that are operating very much within or along the uh, tangential lines of financial services. And if we can identify those that are truly being quite disruptive, helping solve significant problems of existing incumbents, but also looking to um, disrupt the existing incumbents as well, in particular, those B2C businesses that we've seen develop in recent years across the space, whether it's near banking or wealth management and beyond. So essentially, it is a venture capital business, and you're backing small companies that you hope are going to grow by uh, disrupting, and then either presumably continue to grow or be taken over by others, or sold by you, perhaps, to uh, another party. Um, so or IPO. We mustn't forget, even though we're in a very quiet IPO market, there is many data points of uh, venture-backed businesses IPOing both in Europe and in the US, of course. Yes, of course, I had forgotten about IPOs. I've recently not seen many of them, certainly not in the investment trust space. So let's just quickly then talk about how you've done in those five years, because I mentioned there's been a disparity between the NAV performance and the share price performance. The first you can control, the second you can't, essentially. And I think you've done a sort of round trip in a way, if I can put it that way. You issued your first shares 100p. You went up to a massive premium for a while. You were very much flavor of the month. I think at one point you had the highest premium of any investment trust, and now you're back at a 35% discount, and the share price is around 100p. So you've done a kind of round trip, but the NAV has done much better. So how would you characterize the performance since you came to the market? Well, ultimately, we are investing in an asset class that you've got to measure over the long term. There are always going to be fluctuations on an annual period, and I think those that I talk to about listing 
a venture capital fund, and it's quite unusual, and you're going to have to deal with the vagaries and volatilities of the market. And we're certainly enjoying or enduring that at the current time. As you rightly say, we've got to focus on what we can control. And you know, it is our job to identify exceptional early stage propositions in the fintech space, back them with capital and our expertise, because we are a team of investors who've also been operators and entrepreneurs, and that stands us out. We've built very valuable technology businesses over the years, but we've adapted and over the last decade have become investors. I think that's really important in a fast-moving environment. And it's to back and support those businesses that not only show promise, but start to deliver on that promise. And when you're in the business of venture capital, not all your bets pay off. You need to make calculated bets, but you need to make sure the ones that do pay off more than pay for those that don't work. And I think if we look at the invested capital that we have put to work since 2018, then we have delivered an average IR across the portfolio of 18.5%. And that's really important because for us internally, success is delivering over the long term a 20% internal rate of return that will put you in the top decile of venture investors in the market. So we need to make sure not only do we demonstrate a continued growth in the NAV, but we've got to deliver realizations too as well, because I think investors in the investment trust space and beyond have a healthy skepticism when it comes to valuations. And we saw that over the past 18 months. And that's why many of us are trading at a very significant discount. Now, I would argue to you that it's rather indiscriminate. And hopefully at some point, investors will take a look under the hood and start to say, I understand why this one would trade at a 40% discount, but actually not everything should be treated as apples and apples. And I think that is our challenge to try and shift the narrative, to try and articulate why we should trade at par or at a premium. And the way to do that is to continue to deliver success and to deliver realizations, which we've done in the last year. We just put our results out in the last couple of days on July the 4th, and we have delivered two exits, one interactive investor, which was at the beginning of the financial year. We delivered a RR of nearly 90% on that, 11 times money of invested capital and another business called Cushion, which was very recently acquired by NatWest just after the period which closed in, the deal closed in May. And that delivered an RR of 60%. We held that for a much shorter period of time. That was an unexpected exit. But when you're holding assets in the financial services space, of course, there's real strategic value. And ultimately, we expect, um, whether it's strategics, whether it's private equity, if they do want to acquire assets, often we would expect them to pay a premium. And that comes back to the NAV point. And we've had five exits since IPO and all have been at the holding value or well above the holding value. And I think that's a really important proof point. So as investors rightly say, keep showing us a track record and the, um, the discount will narrow. We hope that will very much be the case in the not too distant future. Yes, but you said you had a 20% rate of return target when you came to the market, and you're quite close to that, or pretty close to that, and you made these five realizations. You also said you had an ambition to grow the trust of 500 million or something like that, which is uh, quite important to have scale of that sort. But of course, in the last 18 months, you haven't been able to come back to the market to issue any more shares. So how far does that drive your realization strategy? In other words, are you in a position where you're not quite forced to sell something, but uh, prudently want to sell something that you might otherwise have kept for a little longer? Yes. I mean, I think we're always trying to strike the right balance of not having too much cash drag, but also ensuring we've got sufficient capital to both 
support the existing portfolio and to deploy into new exciting opportunities that we have identified in the market. And I think if we look at the current environment and we look at our balance sheet and we're sitting on about 50 million pounds of cash, we are long cash at the moment. And I think rightly so, because we feel that the environment is shifting to a dynamic where there will be better value, better priced opportunities in the market in the final quarter of this year and throughout 2024. And we want to be armed and ready to be able to capitalize on those opportunities on behalf of our shareholders. But as you rightly say, what we can't do when you're trading at a 30% plus discount is issue new shares into the market. So you need to ensure that your portfolio construction is right that your maturity of your portfolio is well-balanced, so you have visibility on exits. And of course, you can't be overly prescriptive with the timeline to say that we're going to exit X in December of this year and Y in March of next year. But ultimately, you have a pretty good idea of when these businesses are going to be looking for liquidity or looking for an exit. And of course, there are times where you are taken by surprise by someone opportunistically coming in. And it is your role as an investor. And remember, with minority investors, we often take a very active role in these businesses and have a board seat where we will give a view as an important, sizable investor in these businesses to whether it's the right time to sell or not. I think what we always want to do is to hold on to our assets that we think have continued growth. And we never want to have to sell just for liquidity. I think you want to be in a position of strength. So I think it's up to us to carefully manage that liquidity. As I said, we're in a very strong position at the current time. And as and when we might return to the market, it's no time soon with the balance sheet that we have. And we'll see what position the markets are in this time next year, when hopefully the uh, the discount will have evaporated. Some of the scepticism about private equity we've seen in the last 18 months, about the valuations that they are still putting in there, and the fact that they've got a lot of cash, but they're now struggling to do deals and so on. Do you think that investor scepticism is at all justified, looking at the industry as a whole? I think we've got to separate private equity and venture capital, because although we're bucketed collectively, it's a very, very different approach. I don't think I'd be a very good private equity investor, and I don't think many private equity investors would be a very good venture capitalist. We're in the business of taking risk at the early stage, you know, backing visions and often dreams, and hopefully some of those dreams come to reality and deliver that outsized return. And so I recognize in the private equity world with debt proving much more expensive, it's hard to lever some of these deals. I think when you're looking at the early stage in venture, there is no debt or very rarely debt in these businesses and you are putting equity in. So I don't think we see the same dynamic. I think for us, though, the first half of the year has been quieter from a deal flow point of view. And that has been a reluctance from many fintechs across the European ecosystem to dip their toe in the market because they are nervous about the response that they're going to get from a valuation point of view. Ultimately, though, there's only so long that they can sit on their hands because if they have an ambition to grow, and hopefully many of them are growing, they will need more growth capital to get to that next stage. And um, ultimately, we think there is going to be a real shift in Q4 this year and next year because there are some fantastic businesses that absolutely need to continue to grow either in their own market or to internationalize or to go into other verticals. And they will require capital to do that. And I think the bid and the offer between the companies and the investors is certainly narrowing in terms of price expectation. And I think that will uh, hopefully meet a happy medium before too long. 
So in other words, you're saying that in a number of cases, people's expectations of prices are perhaps a little more rich than you would be happy with yourself. Let's put that way. Yeah, I think that's right. And we have also been guilty of sitting on our hands. Not that we haven't seen a number of quite compelling opportunities, but a great company isn't always a great investment. And I think it's really important to differentiate between the two. I guess one other thing to point to is if you look at the height of the valuation bubble, both in the public and private markets in the middle of 2021, we saw businesses trading on extraordinary forward revenue multiples in the listed markets at 20, 25 times. And certainly in the private markets, we saw some forward revenue multiples of north of 50. And the question I often get asked by investors is if the market has normalized from an average of 23 times in the public markets down to six today, why haven't you brought your valuations down accordingly? And I point to a chart which we helpfully provide them and say, well, when the market was at its frothiest, we didn't actually move our valuations. Our average forward revenue multiple on businesses growing on average about 100% a year was six. So that has come down to four and a half in the results just released now. And that is on a cohort of businesses that have grown over the past 12 months with some quite challenging economic headwinds at 117% year on year. So, you know, I think we can point to our track record on valuation and say, we have always tried to be prudent and sensible and transparent on that. And as such, we never wrote these valuations up to the extent perhaps that others did. And I think that's an important distinction, but it comes back to my point of perhaps the indiscriminate charge put against private equity and venture capital that everybody has inflated valuations. And as I said, I need to do clearly a better job in articulating why I think we're fantastic value at our current share price. In the current environment, though, we've got a period of above target inflation. We've got higher bond yields and gilts are still going up and so on. It's also a tough environment for any operating company, let alone you know venture capital startups, Okay, they don't necessarily have debt, but they do have to face the uh, squeeze on customers, businesses, and so on. What's your view about the current environment and how it affects the kind of investee companies you're putting your money into? I mean, you said the revenues are growing, which is good, but are they worried about a recession or what is different about this environment? I think, of course, you have to be conscious of the environment around you. And I think it's quite clear that we're going to continue to be in a high inflationary, high interest rate environment for the next 18 months and beyond, and we're not going to see a return to 0% interest rates for a a very long time, if ever. So I think you firstly need to make sure you're very much eyes open. Of course, as a venture investor, you always have to be glass half full, but you also have to be realistic. And the message that we have been sending to our portfolio companies, not just in the past year, but over the past 18 months, was when the going is good, raise and raise capital. But recognize that you need to preserve that capital and make it last longer than perhaps you thought you needed to at the end of 2021. So it's really important that it's not growth at all costs. It's demonstrating that, yes, it's not about running these businesses purely for profitability, because ultimately, if they're mature, then you can understand why you need to demonstrate profitability. But if you're building a business, you want to keep investing. I frankly have no desire to make a million pounds in a business or lose a million pounds if I can demonstrate that that added $2 million in investment can continue to allow me to grow market share in a market that is nascent. So it's really important that the growth investment that you're making is sustainable, that there is a part of profitability, and the unit economics are plausible. And ultimately, if you do need to go to profit, then you are able to do so. You can turn down the growth dial. And I think that's been the error of many a business over the last few years where growth 
was non-stop, but it was unsustainable in many respects. And these businesses, in terms of their cost infrastructure, was such that when you did turn down the growth dial, then ultimately they couldn't move to break even. And I think that is the challenge for not just many of our businesses, but uh, many others in the venture space. They need to demonstrate that they are on a path to break even and they're not hugely capital intensive, which you know we don't love, if I'm honest, hugely capital intensive businesses. And, you know, we want to see the efficiencies and the economies of scale develop over time. Before I ask you about the portfolio, last question before I get onto that quickly. One thing you could do is just sort of put the two letters AI somewhere, either on the name of the trust or on any of your investments. <laughs> what do you make of that? I mean, that would be an instant way to get re-rated. What's going on there? Is this another bit of speculative nonsense about the show in terms of valuations? There's obviously something fundamental there going on, but uh, is it actually uh, going to be make money for people? Well, I think there's no question that there is one bubble at the moment in the tech space, and that is AI. And you're right to be cynical to say, maybe if I call myself Augmentum AI, I'll move to 40% premium quite quickly. I think we have a healthy dose of skepticism. There is nothing new that we're seeing. You know, Generative AI has been around for a long time. Of course, over the last 12 months, the pace of change has dramatically shifted. And there are some very compelling use cases that are making people quite excited. I think we have to look at it with a very kind of focused eye to say, what is the impact of generative AI on financial services and fintech? How can we play a part in that journey, both within the portfolio, but both from an investment point of view as well? And a number of our businesses have been working and deploying AI for many years. So when I say it's nothing new, that's because we have businesses that are pure AI-based, but we don't jump up and down and say, did you know that much of Zopa's underwriting and capability has been built through AI or on Fido's KYT facial recognition technology is underpinned by AI or Intellis, our Swiss-based Forex businesses built off world-class neural networks. So there is a lot of AI already in the Augmentum portfolio, but it's not something we explicitly talk about because it's just a natural part of their day-to-day business, which gives them their edge and their differentiation. So I think we will see a continued flood of capital in the AI space, in particular in the US. And I think you're already seeing that now. And of course, a lot of that capital will be burnt, but uh, everybody's hoping that they will pick the one or two that become the extraordinary outlier success story. So it is exciting, but also one needs to be measured. And I think from our point of view, we are continuing to learn about where the market is going and make sure that our thesis is well-developed as well. And also from an internal point of view, how can we as an investment team be more efficient and use AI? And we'll be spending time in the summer internally looking at our work practices and say, um, you know, what could we do better from our point of view? So I think there's a lot more to come. But you won't see us jumping up and down and throwing capital into AI directly anytime soon in a meaningful way. So just looking at your portfolio then, it's quite a concentrated portfolio. You have, I think, sort of 20, 30 holdings normally, but you've got about 45% or something in five companies, including your largest is a company called Grover. I've noticed a lot of your company names only have about five or six letters in them. That seems to be part of the game. But what are you most excited about in the portfolio that you can talk about? So I think it always depends which day of the week you ask an investor what they're most excited about. I think for us, there's a lot in the early part of the portfolio 
that you always tend to be excited about because it's the beginning of the journey and you haven't had that optimism eroded yet by the inevitable roller coaster journey. But I think we can really point to some of our businesses that are really established where we backed at an early stage. I think Tide is a great example, a digital SME banking platform that we backed four years ago. It had a couple of thousand customers. It was generating a couple of million pounds of revenue. And I look at it today and it's got half a million customers. It has 9% market share in the SME banking space. Its revenue run rate will be well north of 100 million. And it's demonstrated, frankly, to the naysayers who had said, well, you can't disrupt the traditional SME banking space. It's embedded with the traditional players. And I think what was our thesis in that business was the service that so many small businesses were getting, not only once they had a bank account, but actually in the challenge of trying to open one was such that we felt that there was a great opportunity for new players to come in and really deliver a, a different experience. And so Tide has proven to be a hugely successful case in the UK. They've just launched in India and you know they will launch elsewhere in Europe in 2024. And so I think that's one to really watch because I think there was a fair amount of scrutiny on that investment early on uh, where people said, I get it, but it's an impossible nut to crack. And I think they've demonstrated that you can crack that nut and hopefully they can demonstrate success in other markets and that will you know, hopefully have a long way to go. So I think that's just one really good example of a business that we had real conviction in, but also conviction in the team and the potential. And it's really showing some very positive signs. So my final question to you, Tim, is this. When you launched again, you said that you thought the investment structure, you know, patient capital was a good one for you because it's contrasted with the normal experience of private equity or venture capital, where you have a kind of 10-year window where you've got to make some money and then get out for the investors. Are you still sticking to that view? Well, I love the structure in many respects because I think it is really important to have patient capital and the ability to recycle that capital in an effective way. Of course, when you look at it at a moment in time, you can have moments of great frustration when you trade at a hefty discount. And then when you trade at a hefty premium, then you have a very different view. But as I said at the beginning, the key proof point for us as an investment trust is to deliver those long-term returns. And I think if we do that and continue to do that, then the rewards will be there. So yes, of course, I would love to see the share price at 160, 170, where I think it should be, but we will do what we can to try and uh, change that narrative. The best way to do that is to keep putting runs on the board. So yes, I'm still a believer and very much hope that we can continue to scale the trust over the years to come. So that was Tim Levine, the CEO of Augmentum Fintech, a specialist uh, fintech investment trust. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.